listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi everyone, my name is Nick Lopez. I'm a writer-director. You might know me from my short films, Sunshine Room and Milk Teeth. Currently, I am trying to make it through 2020 in one piece, but I'm also working on a short digital web series called West's Neighborhood about the impact and legacy of racism and discrimination in American suburbia. Nick Lopez, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Anytime, anytime. And I want to give the audience a little bit more background on you. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit from a bio here. Of course, this is from the internet. So you can always tell me if this is incorrect or something needs to be clarified. Uh, Nick Lopez is a Colombian American writer and director. Nick was born in Bogota, Colombia, and grew up in San Paulo, Brazil, and Fort Lauderdale, Florida and recently graduated from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles with a BFA in film and TV production and a summa cum laude distinction. Quite impressive indeed. Uh, I wanna start with a little quote of yours that I saw on social media. And it says, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here (laughs) to become America's top model. What is that all about? 100%. Um, I am a lover of reality TV. And oftentimes when you're talking to, um, I don't want to say pretentious because they're not pretentious, but really serious film people or cinephiles, they ask you what you're watching. There's an expectation that you're keeping up with the entire um, bulk load of the abundant content that's coming out everywhere. And I, I don't have the bandwidth to do that. I, I find that my creative energy um, is often spent on my own work. Um, so when it comes to what I watch at the, when I clock out of work at the end of the day, it's not nece- it's never necessarily the hottest series on Netflix or anything like that. Often it is if it kind of aligns with my specific interests, but I find a lot of, solace and refuge and comfort in <laughs> like some what some people would say less serious reality tv i actually don't watch america's next top model um <laughs> very fanatically but it's a it's a quote it's kind of a reality tv trope of contestants that come on and say i'm not here to make friends i'm here to be the next top chef or whatever <laughs> Right, right, right. I'm basically here here for the prize money. Yes. And (laughs) everybody else can go to hell if if, if they get in my way sort of thing. I love the ambition. So uh, taking it back to the very beginning, you talked about some of your tastes, things you like, um, things you're attracted to uh, from a taste standpoint. Uh, I'm curious, how old were you when you first became drawn to writing and filmmaking? Um, what, what, was there a moment also 
that you can remember and, and let us in on that where you just knew this would be your future? I, I don't know that there was a specific moment. It was, I, I'm very lucky that I come from a household where my parents never questioned my artistic interests and ambitions from an early age, I was into theater um, and also always liked to write short stories and stuff. And so when that transitioned into an interest in filmmaking, they like inexplicably, and I'm not sure if responsibly kind of went along with it, um, but I'm glad that they did because it took me to where I am now. But in terms of my specific, like how I started getting into content, I think when I was a kid, I was one of those like 11 year olds that for some reason wanted to watch like every movie that won the Oscars in like mm-hmm. the nineties and watching all these um, movies that were too slow and bland, even for adults. Um, and yeah, I was just like things that were like completely not appropriate for my age level. Like my favorite TV show when I was like 10 was desperate housewives, which makes <laughs> no sense but i was very i was early on drawn to kind of like twisted fun takes on especially like female driven stories yeah i have these really warm memories of my mother uh in the 90s and uh 80s we would on oscar night we would uh print out these sort of award sheets and we would all get one, everyone in the family, we would sort of gamble and bet on who would win, which award. Yeah. And as you get older, you get a little bit more cynical and you say, well, what was that all about? You know, my mom wasn't in film or entertainment. My dad wasn't in film or entertainment. You know, what, why are we doing this kind of thing? And then you, then you realize you have the wisdom just to say, uh, because it's fun. Because it's a thing to do together. And I think that's what storytelling does. I think that's what movies do. They, they bring you together. Um, 100%. Yeah. I completely agree. I I, I love that. Uh, You were born in Colombia, grew up in Brazil and moved to Florida. Yeah. What brought you to the United States in the first place? And um, Um, tell me how your background maybe influenced some of your creative interests? Yeah. um, So all of the moving around happened by like, by the time I was like in my early teens, all of that was done. So all of that was mostly fueled by like wherever my parents were took them. Um, I was incredibly unhappy when I had to come to the United States, which is very ironic because in retrospect, I'm very thankful for, that move and the opportunities that coming to the United States offered me. Um, but when I was like 10 years old, I was quite um, attached to Latin American culture, which I still find today to be just more warm and open and less aggressively individualistic than the United States. Mm-hmm. But, oh, there's, thinking back on how that shaped me, I think I understood a lot later 
that, well, I, I came out as a queer person when I was in like my mid teens mm-hmm. and I didn't find out until much later that there were a lot of queer people in my family and the family from both sides, from both my parents, my mom's side, and my dad's side, I'd always known that we were filled with artists. So my parents were kind of the anomaly, but my extended family is filled with like painters and musicians, um, actors from the theater or circus performers, like a really vibrant set of artists. Um, and it wasn't until kind of after I came out that I started realizing either because different people in my family would tell me that these people, a lot of these people were queer. Um, and so after that came this feeling that I was robbed of a lot of these queer role models, um, while I was growing up, like unnecessarily because of the heavy stigma that, um, queerness carries in many cultures and especially in communities of color. And so that absence, I think, really fuels a big part of what I think like my creative mandate is um, and why I think it's so important um, to tell the stories that I'm interested in telling. And as I'm telling them, be kind of like uncompromisingly queer in my approach and just how I conduct myself. So, so young queer artists now don't feel like they're creating in a vacuum so that they feel like there, there is like a precedent to the space they want to occupy in whatever discipline they choose. Yeah. And, and you're very passionate about it. You're very outspoken and, 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 and make it well known, um, that you are all about collaborating with women and queer artists and, um, you make these lush short films, by the way, oh, these are really you. lush, beautiful looking short films. Many of the, uh, almost all of them have, um, an abundance of sort of, you know, female roles, yeah. um, roles, of people of color. Um, what do you see as your primary challenge, uh, or challenges in the independent film world uh, to promoting these narratives? I mean, uh, and have you gotten support have you found support promoting your passion for these narratives? I mean, to be very honest about where I currently am, I'm still very early on in my journey as a filmmaker. So I just graduated from film school like six months ago or something like that. Yep. But within, within that scope of production and of pursuing those types of projects, Um, what I kind of have bumped up against is although I think higher education is right now the most powerful system of upward mobility that we have into the arts, um, specifically within an art like film production that is extremely expensive and is, um, so governed by really strict um um i'm thinking of a word and it's going to come to me and i use it all the time oh like all these strict gatekeeping systems mm-hmm. um it's a sh- so within that structure film school is i th- i think from what i've seen and from people that i've met one of the better ways to get people that come from um more 
from different backgrounds to come into this really competitive industry. But even within that, um, you're still being taught by people who are used to particular systems. So although I did have during film school, I, I always wanted to feature um, Latin American performers and trans performers. Um, I, those, those systems that exist to educate me, they're not used to having to reach out to those populations. So I kind of had just to figure it out myself, um, which is not that much of a limitation. I mean, I, I feel very lucky in the resources that I have an access to. So I feel less like I have a really strict obstacle in my way and more, um, I'm feeling like I'm part of a generation that are really going to have to build an infrastructure of supporting diversity from the ground up, especially as it comes to the many barriers to entry that there are specifically for creators and artists of lower economic um, levels. What social narratives, though, uh, in minority communities do you feel need the most attention or illumination through your work? I think, well, to me, I think what would be the most exciting um, end goal of the industry's current like, interest in diversity. And you, you could break down how much of that is sincere, which I know some of it is, and I really hope some of it is, but some of it is kind of a reaction to social unrest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope that many people realize that a lot of that unrest is it doesn't just boil down to to oh we need to show people that look differently there's also like a class element to it there's many of these social movements that have come up in the last four years and even more of that have have a strong element of a reckoning <laughs> by working class people and wanting an agency and a voice in their government and their stories. Um, and so I feel a, a really big responsibility to highlight those stories because like I said, I'm really thankful to be coming up in a time where entertainment is pretty democratized before, like even 10 years ago, if you wanted to watch a movie, you'd had to go to a really expensive movie theater, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which not a lot of people can afford. But now, I mean, all these subscription services have kind of reinvented cable, but in any case, for a couple, for like $5 a month, even with one of these streaming services, you have access, um, as long as you have an internet connection to all of these shows, right? And so I kind of view that as a democratization of filmed content. But along with that, what I feel responsibility to these, this audience that I know is hungry for content, is to have their specific experiences represented in an authentic way, um, which part of that is when you're asking about how I, how, how do I feel like the responsibility of telling that in my stories? It's both in the stories that you tell, but also in the people that it, you include behind the camera. How do you outreach to people of different backgrounds in a way? Again, that's not just about like from a racial perspective, from an ethnic perspective, but from like a socioeconomic <laughs> perspective. Right. Yeah, for sure. You said there's so much to, to unpack there. And Nick and I, um, my co-founder and co-host on this podcast, we, we actually follow the sort of streaming wars as they're happening. And mm-hmm. it really does feel like 
cable has followed uh, that that model has followed us to our set top box. Yeah. And that, but, but I also am noticing that AVOD, so advertising video on demand, seems like it's going to win for most people because you were talking about the socioeconomic impact. Most people can't buy all these services. They can't oh, have sure. a subscription to 15 different places. That's more Absolutely. expensive than cable ever was. 100%. So I love what Peacock is doing. And yes. I think, and I love what Hulu does. And I think that, at, I think that, I think they're going to win. Uh, in the long run, there will always be a place for a Netflix or an HBO Max or Showtime, et cetera. But I think they're going to win for the majority of the public. I think Pluto TV is going to win as well. And then the question will be, how do we get filmmakers paid in a way that's commensurate with making another film? Yeah. And so that's kind of the math that I think we have to figure out. You talked about reaction to sort of social justice. And one of the things as an outsider to this community, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's this term Latinx mm-hmm. and I'm wondering where you think the human, uh, the Hispanic community is with the term Latinx. I've seen, I've heard it both ways. I've heard um, so many people use it and, and that I respect. And then I've seen uh, several reports and research saying that 97% of Hispanic people don't agree with the term and don't want to be called that. What, what do you think? I, I mean, I think that's a really good question. There's, I'm finding as the more I learn to find the value in like my heritage, um, the more I've had to go back and like investigate it and <laughs> unpack the nuances as, as it relates to my background as Latin American person. Mm-hmm. an immigrant and the like the social justice frameworks that we have in the United States. So I don't, I use the term Latinx. I, I, there's a lot, a big amount of people in the U S that have asked for that term to feel included in the community. Um, but I've, I've also, like you said, been exposed to some arguments against it. I, but frankly, it's something that I, I don't have a super strong opinion in, in terms of, in terms of like exploring complexities within Latinx representation, something that I, I have been trying to raise awareness of and study as much as I can is, um, the ways in which Latinx representation as, as it's been heralded and kind of tried to be championed in the last couple of years is often exclusionary to like Afro-Latinx voices and how often like the like conception of this identity of being Latinx um, creates this almost kind of like aspires to a raceless or just, or to race either a raceless idea or uh, an identity that doesn't acknowledge the the really stark um, like differences in how white Latinx people and Afro-Latinx people are treated and represented, whether that be in the United States or in Latin America. And I think moving forward as Latinx creators and artists and filmmakers kind of fight the good fight to make sure that they're seen. I think 
that's going to be a really pivotal um, part of that mission and making sure that we're not falling, that nobody around us is falling into this comfortable space of advocating for the quote unquote Latinx community when oftentimes, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that excludes a really important chunk of our community, which is Afro-Latinx people. Right. I, I grew up during the period where there was this shift to call Black people African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And growing up in a predominantly Black family, I remember that resistance to that. Like, And, and it, I think there's still some people in the Black community that's like, hey, call me Black. Uh, and I think part of that was at least I'm in the South. So at least here in the South, Nick, a part of that was, Hey, white people told, said they were going to start calling us that. Yeah. It was this idea that white people assigned us a name that made them feel more comfortable. Yeah. And we wanted to push back against that. So oh, no, wait a second, wait a second, you know, like let, let us at least come up with the name, but it is a long-term thing, Nick, like over time people get comfortable with it. And, you know, I would say the majority of people have no problem being called African-American. So I think you're right. I think it's kind of a a wait and see kind of thing. Um, I mentioned your very, very lush short films. I I think Mm -hmm. I think these are really incredible. And I I was blown away by a trio of, of films, Flower Baby, Milk Teeth and Sunshine Room. And um all three seem to share this commonality, which is this, this concept, this dichotomy of child and guardian in all three, child and guardian. But you found these really unique ways to, to tell it. I mean, one of them is kind of sort of um, pop art comedy, if you will. Another one is a, it's a drama and is emotional. Uh, the, the other one's kind of a horror that really reminded me of, of Pan's Labyrinth. And in its tone and its feel. So you found these three different ways to have this common theme. So I guess my question to you is, is where do you get, you know, these ideas and inspirations for, for these stories? And, and, and is that theme of child and guardian, does that come from personal experience? That is the first time somebody has framed that collection of shorts that way and now i'm thinking a lot about it like am i subconsciously (laughs) fixated on that i don't know um i do have to say out of those three shorts that you mentioned i only wrote two of them and so sunshine room which has the grandmother granddaughter or like multi-generational female story that was yeah tiffany lynn wrote that but i mean i i still attached myself to that project Um, I, when we, when you take screenwriting classes, um, something that I'm, that we're often advised against is to build a story with an emphasis on spectacle, um, because you can, like the, the theory is you can focus too much on the bright flashy thing, on the, the bright flashy set piece and, um, leave like character to the side um, but especially when crafting shorts like a short form narrative which is simpler to craft than like a long 
a long form script. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm when I come up with a short film concept to to answer your question of oh like this is so lush <laughs> how do you come up with this? It does come out of me sitting down and thinking of a vibrant instant hook that people will want to remember and. And then I, so I kind of sometimes build a story from the outside in versus from the inside out. Um, but it, it, I think it also- can I, can I hop in right there? Yeah. I'm sorry. Will you break that down? There's so many uh, people in this audience that, that love the didactic and they're actually in film school now or, or trying to cool. make their first film. When you say you approach it from the outside in versus the inside out, what, what do you mean? Um. I think it's an oversimplification of that, but if, if, if the way that it's explained to us is a story, a good story, a strong story should always start with the character and from there, or, or, or character, I mean, you could start with theme, I guess, or, or an idea and build a character around that, but let's just say character and then character will guide a story and a story will guide like the kind of flashy stylistic um decorum that you want to embellish it with um that's kind of the i'm not saying this is like a universal agreed upon truth but the way that's been taught to me a lot i was always warned start with character first and don't start with a spectacle (laughs) with spectacle being the term of um like i said fun uh set piece like qualities of a story um, start with character and then if everything comes from character after that then the story will have more of a heart and be more convincing and more immersive for an audience but but I think the re- part of the reason is that I, I thank you for saying these nice things about my films and I and looking at them I am really proud that they have really fun original concepts um, what I, what I observe about my own process is I kind of shamelessly start with a flashy premise mm-hmm. and then find a way to insert characters in it that are genuine and, and in a plot that does, that is guided by character. Um, but it often does start with what is the spectacle <laughs> going to be? What is the spectacle about the idea? So in that way, it's, it, it's, kind of like building it from the outside in instead of from the inside out. I really agree with that because when I read a screenplay, even if there are no grammatical errors, which still happen more than I, you know, I think any of us would like to admit, uh, unfortunately, but, but when I read it, a lot of times I'm, I'm saying, okay, well, what is extraordinary about this? Is something going to happen in here in this story that is let's let's put it like this newsworthy like why am i going to stop everything i i was doing everything that was on my mind to keep reading this or keep watching this Uh, something unusual some twist or, or like you say spectacle has to happen that really takes the story outside of what you would normally expect or read it's a critical i think function of a great story nick Thank you. I, I think I, I agree. I think it's especially true, like I said, with the overabundance of content that there is everywhere. Mm-hmm. How do you get your concept or your movie poster or your teaser trailer to stand out in a Twitter feed? And especially when it comes to short form content, like a short film, which mostly is a vehicle to get 
a filmmaker, some talent attached into a bigger project? How do you, how, how do you make something that's 10 minutes long stand out? And I personally am drawn to short films that do have a really memorable hook versus, um, an interesting dramatic scene that's 13 minutes long and, and might showcase some really excellent craft, but that's less likely to stick for general audiences. Well, yeah, I think the audiences agree with that, that take. I mean, you've won so many awards with these mm-hmm. short films and I'd love to see, I'd love to see uh, milk teeth as a feature film. I think with exposition on the front end of the orphan, you could get through act one and he could make this discovery sometime in Act Two and go on this journey, but um, but hopefully that's that, that's down the line. What you're working on right now is West Neighborhood, yeah. And this is interesting. So this is a a web series that's going to explore the history and uh, of racism and discrimination in American suburbia, and that word suburbia really sticks out to me um, quite a bit. So. What do you see as the distinctive issues of suburban racism versus, you know, just racism as we as we kind of commonly know it? And 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 how do you you know plan to explore that in this new series? Um, so I'll start with the last part of your question and build my way up to the first part of the question. The series started with, I teamed up with a teacher at my local high school in my hometown in Florida who um, was being very vocal in May after the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent um, protests around racial injustice and police brutality around the world. Um, During that time, she was being very vocal locally. And although um, the area that we live in is assumed to be liberal, um, because it it is um, a a densely immigrant community, so logic would assume (laughs) that this is a liberal area, but there was a huge backlash um, against her, and she received a lot of harassment um, just simply for mostly supporting her Black students as they voiced um, their experience as Black people in a suburb. And um, and so in kind of recognizing the importance and value of this teacher's message, of Miss West's message and of supporting this general population of people, specifically in my hometown that felt unheard. Um, I teamed up with her and uh, like pitched a bunch of different concepts. And what we landed on was the five episode web series, like an educational web series that were kind of the way I kind of explain it is a mix between like an informational educational series or like a Ted talk, a mix between the two of them, but done in a engaging stylized way. Um, and through the research that Ms. West brought to the table and through editing this project, which all came together very quickly. So um, we, I ended up learning a lot of things very quickly. Um, the issue of racism <laughs> and discrimination in suburbia is a huge amount, like a whole bunch of stuff to unpack, but it all, it really comes down to like 
housing discrimination in like the early like 30s, 40s and 50s and um, with like the baby boom and white flight away from inner cities and when government, uh, like the economics of housing at around the time that suburbs were created inherently locked out people of color, working class people, poor people, and black people. I mean, uh, these, these are statutes written into a lot of these um, development contracts that often like explicitly forbid <laughs> um, people to sell houses to black families. Right. Um, and so, I mean, kind of m- much like various iterations of racism and white supremacy, it kind of takes different shapes from there. So a lot of these clauses aren't necessarily like explicitly baked into some of these guidelines anymore, but the generational wealth gap that was created since then from when white families were able to buy homes and their values appreciated over decades Um, you have huge chunks of communities of color and black communities that were locked out of that wealth creation. Um, So that's like the the broader historical origins of that. And Miss West can explain it to you with much deeper detail and knowledge and also personality. Um, and, and in terms of like current experiences of you asked, how is suburban racism different than um, typical racism? Right. I think, I think I, I, there, it's, it's all part of the same monster, right? And I think part of, part of this project is uplifting, for me the important part is uplifting a voice of a Black woman who's been in a suburb and letting her voice her experience um, of how this has affected her life and why it's important that we um, uplift these voices in spaces that, again, people might think are liberal, but still hold a lot of racial oppression and racial silencing. Yeah, I mean, it, those are the stories that that need to be told, but I think they're also... I, I'm interested to see this. I want to see if you're able to tell the story and Miss West is able to tell the story in a new way and bring new light on it that that doesn't feel like sort of a rehash of of CNN coverage of something or or national or PBS rather you know coverage of something. Um, I've been looking for that also just in terms of of the black story where. You know, where's the black story that unifies and brings people together uh, through some of these trials and tribulations, almost in the spirit of, of Martin Luther King Jr. versus uh, these black stories that get told now that that are used to sort of, or not used to, but have the potential to divide, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I'm, I'm super excited for it. You, you talked about uh, growing up in Fort Lauderdale yes. uh, and then making that uh, move, I guess, to California to go to school. You've been in a couple of places. You've had some professors. You said you're just out of film school. So I thought it'd be apropos to ask you, uh, who is your mentor, if you have one, and, and, and how have they influenced your work? Oh, my, my mentor? Um, 
I'm not going to go ahead and say I have a specific mentor because I don't, but the, the women professors that I had at USC, there's a handful of them that, um, really made an impact on me. And I always make a, put an emphasis on that, like gender dimension of it, because I I feel such a strong kinship with women creators. And when you're in a room or in a such heavily male dominated space as often film sets are, I mean, things are like, everything is changing and there's a lot of important measures that are being taken to make sure that women are not just on set, but in positions of power on set. But from my experience, it, it still feels like a very heavily male dominated space. Um, and as a queer man, I, I still feel so much more invited to the table when there are like women in positions of leadership <laughs> um, at the center of any project. I feel like um, my perspective is more valued. Um, my way of working and my approach to other people is more um useful to them but in any case um just just a a little tangent about how much i appreciate (laughs) women creators but anyway (laughs) aside from the value that they have in telling their perspective and their stories right obviously that is the most important part but um i yeah i i'm trying to think if there's a specific mentor but i think that's like my best way to answer that question and the people that I met in film school, I think that's the main reason to go to film school. Your peers are, you do have a faculty that knows a lot and that teaches you a lot, but at least for me, um, my peers, people that I was making films with and that were learning with me were my biggest teachers. They, the, why I think filmmaking is so joyful is that it is such a collaborative effort. And so as somebody who came from, into the arts via like theater primarily in high school, which is a very competitive, like individually driven kind of jealous environment. I really learned what it really means to create something um, by leaning on others. Um, So yeah, I don't have, I don't have a specific mentor. I think kind of everyone that I've uh, met along the way has been, valuable in their own way to teaching me and showing me the ropes. Does that include your collaborator or co-collaborator, Tiffany Lynn? Oh, I love Tiffany. Tiffany's incredible. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to Tiffany Lynn. She's um, a, a woman of many trades, like a Renaissance artist, um, uh, animator, production designer, director, editor, writer so many Tiffany wears a lot of different hats and it was a, a such a joy to work with her on Sunshine Room. Yeah, she really is quite creative. I mean just uh going through it seems like she can make anything, draw anything, uh is humorous, can be sad, can be sexy, loves Gaffietti, loves IKEA. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who who wouldn't love a person like that? Um I, I do want to to go back to what you said, though, about the best thing about going to film school, because I think for a lot of filmmakers, that's the ultimate question. Yeah. 
to go to film school or not to go to film school. So what advice would you give? Is it, is it, should filmmakers go to film school? Is it necessary or, or not necessary? The age old question. It's like the question that every, should I like every (laughs) book for young filmmakers like opens with, um, I think it's very circumstantial. I think if you, the answer is you don't need it. And I think anyone who like Googles this question will like quickly find an opinion. I think it's true. You absolutely don't need it. People from all walks of life, um, find like stumble into film or hustle their way into film and more than way more than half people that I know that I've met in the industry, like did not go to film school. So there's that. Like I said, I think as somebody who um, came from a space where I didn't know anybody in the industry going to film school was very helpful because it exposed me to those connections um, that were very crucial for me to be able to create the products that I did. Um, I think in general with higher education, I would really encourage anybody that's interested in studying anything and specifically film um, to avoid paying inordinate amounts of money to go to film school. (laughs) the, The film school that I went to had a big price tag on it. And thankfully I had, um, some like scholarships that made me go. And even if I had to take out like mighty loans, I think, it would have paid off because USC is a really well-known school um, and it has carries a lot of weight in the industry. Um, but in general, I would say I, w- I would not advise people to go deeply into debt um, because especially as an artist, I think financial uh, freedom is such an asset. <laughs> and if you, and if you have financial freedom to create with flexibility, um, that is such, such, um, almost like a luxury, um, that I encourage people to like afford themselves. And also if, if it depends what your interests are in the end, if you're somebody who has this very specific technical trade and that's your foray into film and why you wouldn't go to film school, like I want to be a cinematographer or I want to be a sound designer. There's so many ways to learn that independently and by just seeking out people who are willing to have you on set wherever you live. Um, but especially if you want to be a writer, especially if you want to be a director, um, I, I see a lot of value. And if you can't afford to go to film school or if you don't get into film school that you want, um, giving yourself time to mature and accrue some life experience and <laughs> build a little bit more depth into your character. I know that everyone who graduates from high school, like is convinced that they are ready to take on the world and that spirit and that like irreverence and that like go getter attitude is definitely beneficial. Um, But overall, I think there's also a lot of benefit in waiting it out if you have to, so that when you do get your foot in the door, um, the stories that you tell will be more compelling. I love that. Thank you so much for, for that. I know it's, it's one of these standard kind of questions that you get, but yeah. 
but the answer is real. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real, and the answer is always so varied every time we ask it. So, I yeah. think it is. I think it is complex. Uh, speaking of complexity, <laughs> segue <laughs> man here. Yeah. Uh, which creatives do you most admire and and want to emulate, and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? I mean, you you caught one of the big ones in Milk Teeth, which is Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I am a big, big, big horror and fantasy fan. I think Pan's Labyrinth is like one of the most perfect (laughs) two hours um, that you can experience on this planet. I think Um, the way that he, and also that, that approach to filmmaking that embraces um practical effects um and like a traditional way of making movies uh really reads on screen very powerfully and i I, i've always been very inspired about how he that film specifically introduced international audiences and american audiences to um Latin American magical realism. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is <laughs> not set in Latin America, but it, Guillermo del Toro is Mexican. Um, and I, I, I do see a lot of that influence in that film. Um, so from a craft perspective, I would have to say he's definitely my biggest inspiration, but te- uh, like technique or craft aside, I... I really have to admire what Ryan Murphy has done specifically with the series Pose um, in terms of here's a creator who has had so much success and, and has had like a career that could afford him to do anything. And with this one series, he like set a new standard and a new kind of beacon of hope for people for a community that was really waiting to be included in like a major way. Um, and he, that series, um, the series itself blew me away, but specifically at that time to, um, kind of categorically say, this is going to be a show on a major TV network (laughs) that we're going to hire actual trans performers and trans writers and trans directors, trans people of color to start it. I mean, you can't, it's hard to like overstate um, how important that was and how the impact that that's going to have moving forward. And so it's kind of those like inherent structural breaking from the norm. Um, that is something that is like the type of filmmaking and the type of like spirit behind the filmmaking that I think I'm always going to aspire to. Yeah. I love that. And I love both of those, uh, nominations. (laughs) (laughs) If you had one month to teach someone how to be a director from your vantage point now, someone just brand new, uh, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a 14 year old kid that, that, just watched Milk Teeth and, and mm-hmm. you know, they, they can't go to film school. They got to go to you. And mm-hmm. you had one month to teach them just how to be a credible sort of a functioning director. What would be the first three things you would teach them? Oh, my goodness. Wow, this is a hard teaching assignment, but let's think about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, so for literally talking like a 14 year old, this is the first movie. I mean, this is not the same thing as outlining the, like the handful of most important things about making film at a professional level, but young kid, first time grabbing camera, a big, a big part of the way that I learned how to make, tell a good story is through limitations. So while I'm at first tempted to give this kid all of the equipment that they need, um, it would probably be giving them like one really good camera, but no other really fancy equipment um, and putting in a really strict set of parameters. <laughs> so tell whatever story you want, but it cannot have dialogue or it cannot, it has to be in the dark, something wild like that. Um, because I think with limitations, people really learn how creative they are. Um, I think that'd be one thing that I, that I think is important to, not through somebody who's new with every possible resource, especially a young student. Um, so, so they can learn from the inside out. The second thing, um, I mean, I would, I would refuse to like approve the story that they're telling unless there is a really strong problem or conflict at the center. I think that's with young filmmakers and young writers. I think that's like, and I think writing in general, an easy way to write a really bad script is if there's not a solid conflict mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are starting off, like these stories are often like passive. So make a movie, think of like a really difficult situation and make a movie about that. Um, third thing I would teach this novice or aspiring filmmaker um oh one that i one that i love is like those assignments in film school where they have you like tell a story just with sound like not even (laughs) don't even turn the camera on just do like a soundscape story um to really because that's another element of if you're a, a filmmaker that's coming up and you don't necessarily have a lot of resources not having a lot of resources like usually like i think does not mean anything. You can make a really fantastic film with, with the bare minimum, but sound is something I think people often take for granted and a really low budget short or really low budget movie with a really good sound was going to feel very expensive. It's going to, you can fool everyone if the sound is crisp or if you've in the sound edit, really taking your time with it um, versus if the sound is bad quality or the sound design is kind of sloppy, that immediately sub, even if the audience is aware of it or not really takes you out. Yeah. I, your sound in, in your films and your music is so good uh, (laughs) compared to most independent shorts that we see and sound. You're right. I mean, it really blows it. It can, it can blow it if if it's not good. And I hope it's not an inappropriate question, but how much, what, what was the budget on Milk Teeth? $10,000. So for Milk Teeth, it was $10,000. Granted, we had a lot of resources um, from the faculty that we didn't have to pay for. So like we didn't have to rent a studio. We, um, we had to rent the bulk of our equipment, but we did have like a a camera, which is a really costly expense was provided to us. 
Um, but then on the flip side of that, there, we also, um, at USC specifically, they have this, a, a guideline that you can't break, which is you cannot hire actors for pay, <laughs> which sounds like ridiculous. Right. And I really think you need to pay everybody that's on set, but it's consistent with a film school kind of way of doing things because oftentimes in these smaller projects, the crew is doing this for free just because they're volunteering to around an idea that they like. Um, so there's like the costs like are offset, I think of where we saved versus where like we usually would have spent, but it was $10,000 give or take a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. I love it. It looks, it looks so good and sounds great. You got incredible performances out of those kids, especially since now that I know they work for free and (laughs) a lot of times kids just can't pull it off because they just can't do it yet. And the performances you got out of them were, were unbelievable. So kudos to you. Thank you so much for that. Clarifying again. So just like I, only directed sunshine room i only wrote milk teeth <laughs> oh god okay, <laughs> it was yeah. part of a class where i made them both in the same class and you weren't allowed to write and direct this the same project which is why i ended up doing two um but felipe vargas who is a really talented director did, i agree did a wonderful performance uh, job with let, those performances let him know yeah kudos to him and and would you know, i mean just I hope he gets to listen to this and, and yeah. hear the compliments on it. I hope Tiffany gets to listen as well. I think yeah. the, 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 the jelly or the peanut butter, whichever one you want to be to, to that <laughs> sound, which is all, it, it seems to be you. So uh, <laughs> wherever these good projects turn up, there's uh there's Nick Lopez behind it. So, uh, so thank much. you. This is, this has been so much fun, Nick. This has been yeah. just a blast hearing your perspectives. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media and on the internet. Yeah, um, my website is nicklopezfilms.com. My Instagram is nic.lopez with two Zs. Um, yeah, that's mostly where you can find me. There's a couple of my short films that are available on my website. So feel free to check it out. Yeah, if you go to that website, uh, Nick, N-I-C, Lopez, L-O-P-E-Z-Z, uh, I think almost... I mean, I was able to watch the great majority of, I think, every film on there. So, and, so my Instagram yeah. has two Z's. The website is just Nick Lope, like N I C K L O P E Z films.com. Yeah. Got it. Quick clarification. My, my, <laughs> my apologies. And, and an important one. So, the one yeah. I just said is your Instagram. Yes. Your website is Nick Lopez, N I C K L O P E Z dot com. Films. Or films dot com. Let's try that a third time. N-I-C-K-L-O-P-E-Z-F-I-L-M-S dot com. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, yeah, now, I wanted to clarify it. Why? Because I really want people to go because I think you're super talented. Uh, can't wait to see what you're, what you're doing in the future. And uh, we'll end with this. Uh, your co-collaborator collaborator on Sunshine Room, Tiffany Lynn, has once said she's a director in the streets and a dentist in the sheets. Uh, if you had to fill in the blank for you. What are you in the streets and what are you in the sheets? <laughs> oh my Jesus. How can I be that? I am, I am a, we're going to go really, really boring with this one. Restart. I am a director in the streets and just an exhausted, tired guy who needs 2020 to be over and needs 
whatever mess that just happened for us to all reflect on it and do better in the future. In the sheets. In the sheets. <laughs> in the sheets. How's that for a pickup line? I love it. I love it. And it's perfect for this year. I'm I'm right with you, brother. I'm right with you. Nick, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Best of luck in all that you do. I hope we can stay in touch and I look forward to a round two uh, whenever you're ready. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you have a great rest of your year and I'm looking forward to the content that y'all keep churning out. We'll keep doing our best to uh, lift up this community. I know you'll do the same. Thank you. All right, Nick. Be good. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.